This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. My guest this week is Nalin Rajori. Nalin, first of all, thanks for joining Abroad Future and welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much, Benoit, for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Nalin, why don't you give us a quick intro and your background and interest? Sure, thanks for that. Uh, I guess this is the boring part, so I will keep it short. <laughs> Well, I've been uh, designing uh, people programs uh, in Asia for the better part of the last two decades. I focus on three aspects, one of uh, agile org design, the other of uh, workforce architecture, uh, and the third uh, around digital uh, HR transformation. been with Deloitte uh, for the last decade and recently moved on to set up my own advisory firm called Vantage, uh, which does work on similar lines, but it's, um, it's really, really new. So this is exciting. I've been in this space uh, for a long time, uh, very close to heart. So uh, you know, won't miss an opportunity to have a great discussion and learn something along the way. Absolutely. And it's a topic that's very close to heart for me as well. So let's start with the basic, just to make sure all the listeners have a shared understanding. I'm always interested in talking about HR operating model. I mean, some people like football or hockey. I'd like to talk about HR operating model. Do you want to give us just a quick definition, understanding of what that is? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, HR operating model, I think, at its very simplest um, uh, and pretty much like uh, any other operating model, is uh, the way HR teams uh, organize themselves to deliver on their HR strategy, their uh, key roles and responsibilities uh, in the organization. So these roles within HR then would typically have a list or a roster of activities. Uh, and depending on a spectrum of whether your operations through the strategy or a mixture. Uh, and then the other thing that the model does is uh, decide on how these roles interact with each other. So, you know, the processes that run through it um, uh, and where the handoffs are um, in, in delivering these services. Interestingly enough, there is uh, another term called the HR service delivery model, which uh, gets used fairly interchangeably um, mm -hmm. to the operating model um, where the focus is then on also looking at how does the HR organization actually deliver services to its uh, external and internal customers um, and so on. So this is traditionally how one would define it. Uh, these roles, again, you know, most of us have seen it and known it. Um, more functional, sub-functional. So you would have specialist sub-functions such as rewards, talents, uh, analytics, and so on. Or they may be scalable functions like shared services. And then, like I said, at its very simplest, the idea is 
uh, for HR to organize themselves in this structure and format uh, such that it's able to uh, you know, deliver on its uh, strategy and services to be uh, best of the organization and communities. And needless to say, with the advent of automation, AI, or just general technology that is made available to HR, we can infer that these models are evolving. I mean, it, there's a lot of drivers, but I'd like to explore this one. If, if you run an HR function these days, there are tasks, maybe sometimes even roles, that technology can help or lift or maybe one day replace. So how is that impacting the, the way we think about the organization of an HR function? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I think I would perhaps look at it from two different perspectives. The first one is the fact that these models have evolved just at the level of tasks and the functions and what can be done at the level of automation, but also in the role that HR has been playing in delivering and aiding to the business strategy overall. Right. So uh, when you said that, something that my you know, senior colleague would always say that it's good to see that HR uh, has a seat at the table because if you are not on the table, then you're probably on the menu. And that, that is something that I constantly reminded of. So this evolution has helped. So HR is definitely at the at the table. And I was very fortunate to have been involved in socializing a piece of research that we used to run at Deloitte, which was called the Global Human Capital Trends Report. And this was done across many thousands of HR leaders, and we were we got the front seat on seeing what these. Uh, trends across, you know, are. So in terms of evolution, I think the basic tenets of the model still stay the same, which is, you know, driving efficiency, effectiveness in the way you run your people programs, uh, you deliver your strategy. But over the last few years, there has been an increasing focus on creating, you know, fantastic talent experience pathways. And this new future of work has completely transformed the way HR has traditionally organized themselves. So I see a lot uh, in Asia, you know, the trends globally speak for it. And this covers all aspects. So if you look at talent engagement, if you look at development, you look at org design, you look at workforce architecture. So since all of this is getting impacted, the operating models are having to evolve to cater for these as well. You know, we're not doing talent acquisition the way we were doing it. 10 years earlier, you know, at uh, Phnom people, uh, NYU guys are at the center in front of, uh, of uh, you know, some of the latest in the way we're recruiting. Uh, so technology is really, really impacting the efficacy and the accuracy, the speed and the turnaround the quality in that sense. So there's a lot of leveraging of such technologies in, in acquisition. Uh, you look at learning. You know, the half-life of uh, skills in the 1980s uh, was about 30 years. Basically, it means that, you know, if you learn something when you're in college, that skill would see you through to uh, most of your working life. The last piece of research that I think we ran at Deloitte and some of the other pieces of work around have brought it down to about four, four and a half, five years, right? which means that the way we're approaching learning and the way HR is... Uh, Creating that model, it has to be changed. It has to be personalized. It has to be consistent. It has to be bite-sized. It has to be experiential, right? So engagement is changing. You look at development, 
with the disruption around us, uh, that traditional model of talent supply and demand is under extreme pressure. So that's put a lot of strain on how we manage talent traditionally and the career pathways that uh, they've been used to. Um, so we're looking at a lot of open talent economy to help come push that gap, look at off-balance sheet ways of working, look at the gig economy. So the HR operating models are evolving uh, to take into consideration uh, all of those aspects as well. So, uh, you know, these are some of the key main drivers. Jobs are getting more vulnerable uh, to automation, so HRs have to play a role in that. There is more data available now than ever before. Um, so models are having to incorporate analytics in a way uh, that is no more descriptive, uh, but prescriptive, even predictive. Uh, you know, so technology is playing a huge role. And the way we have run in HR traditionally is completely changing uh, for reacting to the way that uh, uh, that all these drivers are, are making us evolve. We look at the impact of technology in HR, but it's also impacting the overall workforce, which then has its own impact on HR. So how do you see the operating models, the structure, even the art design evolving to help workforce adjust? Um, understanding that it might change from one industry to another, but have you seen a couple of, of examples that would be um, interesting to share? Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And I think we might need uh, a completely separate session for that because we that the way the operating models and the org design piece of it are getting impacted is actually quite an interesting huge topic mm -hmm. to talk about. You know, from an org design piece, we usually refer to it as uh, boxes and lines on a, on a structure. And that's a great second step. Right? Any, mm -hmm. any great design will always be predicated on how well it understands and partners with the factors driving the business, and what enables the uh, you know workforce uh, to deliver. So I'm always reminded of one of my old professors from from business school who would, who would tell us, "Keep it simple," uh, and you know, form always follows function. And so I tend to revert uh, to that when when things are getting more complex. And to your point, for the number of um, model designs available, the frameworks available in the past are changing quite drastically. We had functional models, we had matrix models, we had a lot of those frameworks which worked in the past but uh, are no longer feasible. Right? You know, I'll try and bring it uh, to life through an example. We have done a lot of work on uh, what we refer to as zero-based organization design. Deloitte has their own D3 model Mackenzie's popularized the zero basin. What it basically does is allows you a clean sheet approach to design and to be able to step back and take a holistic view of uh, your organization. Right, allows you to look at how things are changing, what your north star like, and then design accordingly. So that's number one. And in its delivery itself, I've used a lot of design thinking to actually run through and redesign that process. Typical examples are of firms who are on a very aggressive pathway 
and they want to make sure that their operating models will support their future targets, right? A case in our COVID environment, which we've seen so commonly, would be of, for example, an uh, offline retailer going on to an online model. Um, so if you if you consider something like this, and perhaps I could then explain how the theory behind it comes into practice, you know, the, one of the first things that we've been always looking at is what's the challenge statement behind it, right? So why do they want to make this business change? What's the trigger uh, behind activating this journey? And in this case, it may be that they have a, uh, a specific OKR of uh, you know, achieving high number of sales, perhaps revenue, or for all you know, it just might be a cost play given there is a lot of constraint with manpower and they want to use uh, other avenues of, of getting revenue. So it could be any one of these uh, challenge statements, but typically we would uh, consider that in detail before moving forward. If they are looking at, for example, having a better handle on digitizing or digitalizing their assets, yeah, um, technology would come into play in a big way there. And to make that switch from a physical setup onto an online model, or basically go from an offline to an online model, you would need to then look, uh, even before the design piece, at your workforce and talent plans. So in there, we look at two things. One is around scenario building. So you've embarked on this venture, draw up at least three scenarios of what your business plans looks like. Right? You could call them ugly, you could call them appropriate, you could call them uh, enhanced or better than good. The idea is to get a sense of numbers, on what your workforce needs are. And on the back of that, you need to do a stock take on your talent inventory. So if you're in the business, you have a specific sort of capability that is available to you. When you move and you combine this with technology and you try and digitize your assets, you will need or you may need capabilities which are very different from what you have right now. So getting to these two steps, you're already in a great position to understand where are we headed towards? Why is this trigger? And what's going to get us there as compared to you know, what we have around us right now? Again, going back to you know, the example that we picked up, uh, while in the offline model, you would have perhaps a great idea of the physical journey of the customer. You'd understand you know, how to start up merchandising, how the customer is looking around, the in-story feeds, right? Which, when you switch and you create that digital asset, you will need a lot more capabilities along with the technology to provide that same great experience. The second concept is perhaps around personalization, right? In this switch, you perhaps will get to know only at checkout what a customer's preference is. If, you know, in our case, there is somebody switching first time from an offline uh, to an online. But the ideal place would to be like an Amazon Go who was digital first and then came up with the store concept because that gives you some uh, basic information about the customer even prior uh, to the customer making the choice of, uh, of what to buy or sell. So the key question then becomes, how do I dial up this customer acquisition journey? And do I use my online channels for discovery and offline for purchase? or vice versa, uh, or, you know, uh, is that a balance? So the old design 
piece with this evolving technology is not as simple as it sounds because even if you were to look at the capabilities of the stage, you would know that you know you would need great customer experience design people, people who understand psychographics very well. You would need great digital marketing people who are able to understand the entire customer journey footprint. You know, you would need payment uh, platform folks. You would need data analytics. You would need technology. So we've just actually arrived at a place where we've understood what this switch would mean in terms of capabilities and infrastructure. <laughs> and it's at actually this point in time where you actually start the process of involving these teams into guilds or chapters or tribes. You want to go this new, you know, the Spotify way of agile-based design, or you want to go down the uh, more functional way in Apple. So, so then those possibilities uh, appear uh, to you. You know, I guess what I was trying to say was that it is a entire system which has lots of avenues and, and choices to make. And the process has some highlights, so maybe it'll differ from industry to industry, like you said, and it does. But the use of technology to help with some tasks, support it, lead it, is very evident in, in this example that we took up because a lot of it is based out of driving that, understanding the customer, personalizing it, driving it, which is very different when you do it offline uh, as against the... Yeah, thank you for, uh, for walking us through the example. I suppose it also requires a certain amount of agility or flexibility because those transformations don't happen in a month or even a year for that matter. So the org design or the org structure you have in mind at the start of the transformation, if it ever ends, might be looking different a year, two years later. So I my, my understanding is that most companies need to keep a certain amount of flexibility in that design because you want to give yourself the opportunity to, to make course correction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, that's a very valid point on the two sides of the coin. So what we see with a lot of clients is that because agility is the buzzword, not everybody can be agile at the same level and not everybody needs to be agile at the same level. So what I've experienced is that it's very important to understand what is the starting point for any organization when they embark on a certain journey. Uh, and like I said, very important to understand the context, the problem that they're trying to solve, the challenge that they're trying to solve. Uh, so, you know, if you look at some of the uh, bigger consumer brands across the world, uh, and, and also in Asia, for that matter. They like this ability of smaller startups to be able to navigate so quickly, uh, you know, have faster decision-making, um, have very flexible structures. But at the same time, that agility comes at perhaps a cost of decision overload if it's not done properly, repetitive decisions, and perhaps a lack of functionality depth. Uh, so to marry it both, what we've done and seen success in is to actually create use cases in a large organization, taking elements of what they want for the challenge statement to succeed, and then trying it out and seeing whether that particular arrangement works. Because right? it has impact on a lot of things, right? These are your typical tribes and your, and your guilds sort of Spotify-led mm -hmm. arrangements. 
And some have been successful and some just, some have just realized that maybe this is not the correct time or the correct way to approach it. So, you know, I completely agree. I think there is also a cost of uh, mistakes, which in the software world might be low because it's an iterative process and it's a lot more in control. But for some of the larger pieces of work, it's important to sometimes have an overall view and see where you can break down those parts of design and take a shot before bringing it to the to the center. So, you know, we call it designing at the edge, create that use case and make sure that it works before you actually percolate it down into the organization in a big way. To then come back to the topic of HR operating model and HR design, with the, the move now to more hybrid or even remote work, what's your take on the HR organization? Because on the one hand, you could think that a, an already mature and digitized HR function will operate mostly the same, or you can think that, no, actually, it's, it's not just the fact that it's digitized, it's the fact that people might not be in a physical office, which might trigger an even more digitization of the, the process and the ways of working. Right, yeah. Um, so I'll share something very interesting with you. Till even when the disruptions were anyways on because of advent of factors other than COVID, I would ask this question in a lot of boardrooms and to a lot of senior HR leaders. And my question would be very simple along the lines of who amongst them thought that themselves or somewhere in, in, in their HR teams was actually leading the organization into this future of work, yeah? So it's a simple question, right? You're, you're sitting there, you're, you're a fraternity of mm-hmm. HR leaders, uh, and there's no COVID, so this is uh, pre-COVID. But you're seeing all of this AI advent, you're seeing cognitive, you're seeing uh, all these uh, inflections. And so my question was just aimed at eliciting a response of, did they at this point in time feel that they themselves or somewhere in their HR team, somebody was actually leading them into the future world. You'd be surprised that, you know, I would on an average perhaps find 8 to 10% people uh, from the group who would raise their hands. So it's interesting to see that at that stage, there were still organizations who were completely aware of the fact that this is a need, but I think it was still at the stage of being a decision criteria and not so much at an action criteria. But with COVID, you know, a lot of that's gotten accelerated. So plans have been moved forward. And in that process, a lot of firms have also been caught on the wrong foot. And the ones who were, you know, a little further down the uh, majority curve have actually fared better. So I guess the answer to this question will be qualified also on the size and scale and the maturity of the business in in general. Um, But what I've seen over the years is that the dominant view of a high-touch HR was already starting to get replaced for a number of years, right? with HR's response to bring on self-service, bring on more enterprise-wide systems, you know, smart reporting, shared services and the like. And so there was already a push to demystify a lot of these transactions, learn a lot of these queries, uh, you know, free up capacity for HR to build up uh, strategic work. 
But that was perhaps true of a particular scale, like I said, and majority of that organization. But a lot of others haven't, right? So they they are still struggling to find that balance between digitizing and then digitalizing. So they're still somewhere in that zone. And they're now trying to figure out that between you know people, between work, between platforms, what is the basic minimum that that needs to get done for legal matters, for operational matters, and then look to moving moving ahead, moving across the curve to saying, uh, can I now build some more people sustainability? Can I you know, now build some more digital inclusion? So it's not a one answer that fits all. But the reaction times have generally been accelerated, for sure. Yeah, the other flip, there's a flip side to this as well, right? Uh, and the flip side is where there is lesser flexibility of working remote, right? So the jobs themselves mm-hmm. are of a nature where the incumbents cannot work remote. So that that's another big area. I'm currently on the on the on the task force, which is um, actually creating a playbook for. Workforce, workforce transformation aimed at single-based firms. And it's a challenge because you don't necessarily have the advantage of that sort of a setup, but at the same time, you still need to see how can you bring in technology, how can you redesign work itself such that, uh, you know, these aspects can be, can be, can be made easier uh, for the conditions now. Um, so it's both sides of the story when, uh, when you look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when organizations are going through these change, how do we help employee embrace them? And and maybe for HR, it's actually something that they want, so it could be less of a challenge. But what's your view on, on bringing the operating model and the new ways of working to the broader workforce? Yeah, I think that's important, right? Because we, in a lot of places, I think we got it done, but now it's come to a point where it needs to stick, right? It's become the new normal. Mm-hmm. The more we realize, the more we feel that this is perhaps going to stick around for a while. And it's a very key question. And I, I haven't found, you know, a silver bullet yet from my conversations with HR teams, but there are certain approaches which I can share, which I feel seem to be working better than other rather there there are facets of certain approaches so I think one key point is how do we continue to communicate to the workforce around what's really important in this new way of working right so how how is value being perceived by the organization from the way that the work is being done or, or the work that is ongoing or is ongoing and it's very important because a lot of the current practices so far were based on the sort of implicit assumption of being present, right? So you're present at work, uh, so you have a policy around it, you're present at work, you, you're physically there, or you're interacting, or meetings. So, you know, there was this implicit assumption uh, of presenteeism, as they say, but this was in another world uh, altogether. And so where it's been successful, this has been one key point that HR has been able to communicate Leadership has been able to communicate and drive this behavior downwards and sideways into the workforce and teams. Clarity around role design, clarity around decision processes, clarity around how value is being perceived from the work, right? Clarity around how performance is being 
uh, measure. So all of these have become very central to making sure that the workforce is comfortable, they they understand, and and they would see this positively. The second point is, as I was I was just uh, you know speaking with with one of the leaders here, and this came out fairly strongly was how do you continue to build the element of trust uh, given the fact that you're no longer seated around uh, interactions are lesser uh, or more depending on what sort of work you are how do you build that continue to build that element of uh, for trust because you know it's 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 commonly known that a high performance a high level of engagement has been long linked to that psychological safety which comes with a trust factor being high so firms are actually really working on uh, making sure that clarity in policy along with um, create consistent communication uh, from leadership and HR uh, and this element of uh, you know continuing to build that trust in your workforce uh, is is both tacitly and strategically uh, displayed through uh, through all of their uh, interactions because the the thing about hybrid and you know this discussion around flexible work arrangements it all comes down to how you are recognizing the recognizing outcomes over or activities um, so firms which have been uh, already very cued on uh, a method of recognizing performance in that manner are actually finding it easier because you know they've instilled that as a culture from before for some that switch over i believe is still a slightly difficult task to to manage uh, and then there's the operational side of it so you know you make sure that you have everything gets work done in terms of enablers you have the right technology you have the right training you have the right tools to your for your employees you've changed uh, all the right policies uh, so so that's that's stable stakes um, uh, as well um, so i think all together you know once flexible flexibility will be contingent on the job and the and the process itself not necessarily on a person or a leader or a manager i think true the true adaptive work cultures uh, then sort of come to play so anything around four to five b strategies applied correctly we should have a positive reinforcing effect. Well, Nalan, thank you for uh, exploring these uh, complex uh, concepts. I know they they require a lot of angle to be considered, but you give us a good uh, overview of the the field and the discipline. My last question for you, where can we learn more about what you do or contact you for any question? So, you know, happy to share my details. I'm on uh, LinkedIn. You can look for me uh, on my profile. That's the easiest place uh, to land me. Uh, the old vantage uh, uh, infrastructure is very new, so it's uh, upcoming. But very soon, you should be able to find us at uh, orvantage.com.sg as well. Fantastic. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, well, first of all, good luck in this new venture. And secondly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ben. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This was Abroad Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardivelli and I thank you for your time.